All of God's people said, amen. You may be seated this morning in the presence of the Lord. This is number 38 in the series on his mark. The title of the message is called Two Men Tried. Two Men Tried. We're going to see a juxtaposition of Jesus Christ, the Lord, the Messiah, the Savior, and one of his primary apostles. At this point, he's a disciple. He will be an apostle after the day of Pentecost as a sent one. But we're going to see a very, very stark moment of human failure in the life of Peter. So I want to just jump in and read the text. You can look on either of the screens as I read this morning. They led Jesus to the chief priest where the high priest, religious leaders, and scholars had gathered together. Peter followed at a safe distance. Everybody say a safe distance. Peter followed at a safe distance until they got to the chief priest's courtyard where he mingled with the servants and warmed himself at the fire. So you can see this kind of happening in your mind. He's just moving around, kind of doing networking. Peter's a very outward, outgoing kind of personality, and he's warming himself at the fire. He's kind of watching what's going on because it's a scary night. It's crazy what's happening. The high priest conspiring with the Jewish council looked high and low for evidence against Jesus by which they could sentence him to death. They found nothing. Everybody say nothing. Plenty of people were willing to bring in false charges, but nothing added up, and they ended up canceling each other out. Then a few of them stood up and lied. Read that sentence out loud with me. It stands alone. Then a few of them stood up and lied. How many of you have ever been lied on? Somebody... You know what that feels like. Can you imagine a sinless, spotless, no reason whatsoever for a lie to be told on is the Son of God? And we're going to see how he responds. We heard him say, I am going to tear down this temple built by hard labor and in three days build another without lifting a hand. They'd obviously muddled some of his sayings together in kind of some kind of crazy concoction there. But even they couldn't agree exactly. In the middle of this, the chief priest stood up and asked Jesus, what do you have to say to the accusation? Jesus was silent. He said nothing. The chief priest tried again, this time asking, are you the Messiah, the Son of the Blessed? Jesus said, yes, I am, and you'll see it yourself. The Son of Man seated at the right hand of the Mighty One, arriving on the clouds of heaven. The chief priest lost his temper, ripping his clothes. He yelled, did you hear that? After that, do we need witnesses? You heard the blasphemy. Are you going to stand for it? They condemned him one and all, the sentence, death. Some of them started spitting at him. They blindfolded his eyes, then hit him, saying, who hit you? Prophesy. Everybody say that with me. Say, prophesy. Prophesy. All right, the guards punching and slapping took him away. Getting close to the end here. Stay with me. Guys, can you wrap that up over there? It's a real distraction. While all this was going on, Peter was down in the courtyard. One of the chief priest's servant girls came in and seeing Peter warming himself there, looked hard at him and said, you were with the Nazarene Jesus. He denied it. I don't know what you're talking about. He went on the porch and the rooster crowed. Here we go. The girl spotted him and began telling the people standing around, he's one of them. 
He denied it again. After a little while, the bystanders brought it up again. You've got to be one of them. You've got Galilean written all over you. Now Peter really got nervous and swore. So he's cursing now. I never laid eyes on this man you're talking about. Just then the rooster crowed a second time. Peter remembered how Jesus had said, Before a rooster crows twice, you'll deny me three times. He collapsed in tears. Jesus, help us this morning. Thank you, Lord, that in the middle of this message today, you can help every one of us find a way back to you. No matter how far from God every individual person is in this room, there's no distance so great that God can't reach us. We thank you for that in Jesus' name. And everybody said, amen. This is the very interesting passage that Mark sandwiches together. Pastor Alex did an amazing job last week, phenomenal message, just in talking to us about the betrayal of Jesus by Judas, the treasurer, uh, just the issues and predicting that Peter was going to deny Christ, and we actually move into that scenario this week as we read that this morning. Uh, as we look at this, we see some snapshots on a crazy night, this is, is one of those nights where um, there's interesting things that, that, that just captivate your, your consciousness and make you aware uh, of, of you, you're going to have to try to make this moment memorialized for people to be able to understand in the future what happened. Um, th this is, if we could look at this, it's almost like a, two selfies on Instagram. And, and we've got a selfie of Jesus and we've got a selfie of the disciple Peter. And, and, and one is the perfect man, God in the flesh. And, and another one is a very, very human, failing individual who is going to do everything he can to cover his own skin, so to speak. And the, the distinction between these two is one of Mark's famous sandwiches where you sort of put these two side by side in kind of contradistinction. It's almost like one of those transformation photos of before and after, kind of the mess that you're in and then you know, you see that after you've gone through the, the diet and the exercise and you see those before and after kind of photos. Well, this is even more stark than that because we're, see, we're seeing the perfect God-man Jesus. N.T. Wright says it this way, and I want to give him credit. He's one of my heroes. He said, Jesus retains his integrity at the cost of his life. Peter loses his integrity to save his own skin. So we're, we're, we're looking at a distinction here. And the irony that's going to be played back and forth between these two scenes of the perfect God-man, Yeshua HaMashiach, Jesus Christ the Lord, Jesus the Messiah, and then Peter, his disciple, the one who's gotten out of a boat and walked on water to come meet him, the one who has been with Jesus as one of the inner circle, not just the chosen 12, but one of the inner circle of three. Every time Jesus told the rest of them to hang tight, just, you know, just sort of make sure that everything's covered out there. Pete, Jim, and John, come on with me. Peter, James, and John, here they go. They, they, they go down to Jairus' daughter's house. And, and these guys are seeing kind of the inner circle, the things that a lot of the other disciples don't have an opportunity to do so. And it creates some tension once in a while. A little bit of a jealousy exists between the other nine and these three. Peter's part of those three. You know, we're, we're in the middle of the story here. And I, and I used 
the message because I want to stay focused on the big picture, the panorama, the, the narrative, the story. If I'm ever really digging down into the depths of Greek words, I'll use a word-for-word, -word, a literal word-for-word -word translation like ESV. But I read this this morning from the message because it's just, just such a great way it's stated and it grabs us and it's just undeniable to think about what's happening. And, and one who's laying his life on the line and maintaining his integrity and he's going to lose his life because of it. And another one who lies and swears trying to save his own life to save his skin. And the distinction between those two different people. We, we, we've got both of them coming into the same courtyard. It's the courtyard of the high priest. First point tonight, I want, or this morning, I want you to see this. Jesus had just prophesied that Peter would deny him three times and then is accused before the high priest as a false prophet. Now, this whole thing before this religious tribunal is all about trumping up false charges because they have nothing in the law of God against Jesus. He has not done anything to break the commandments of God that would even call him before the Jewish council. They're scared of him. And the bottom line is they're trying to trump up this whole false prophet charge because it harkens back to Deuteronomy chapter 18 that if a prophet's words don't come to pass then he can be not only shunned initially but eventually stoned. Okay? And so they're looking to try to get rid of Jesus. They're conspiring together. For those of you that are conspiracy theorists, this literally is a conspiracy theorist. That it is one that is verified by the religious leaders, by the scribes, the Pharisees, the Sadducees, the, the teachers of the law, all the way stretching into the inside, one of Jesus' own twelve, Judas. So amazing because his name is a distinct, almost identical, it's a derivative of the word Judah, which means praise. Which goes to show you that, that we can actually live a life going through all the motions of saying the right words and singing at the right spot and raising our hands at the right time. And we can be living a life of Judah, of Judas, but yet there is a praise that will betray Jesus himself. He said, I'll identify him by the one that I kiss. And he walked into the garden. Isn't that interesting? In the very same place that man lost his open relationship and open heaven with the Father, was in a garden. So Jesus is in a garden in order to be able to open that thing back up again. He's going to be accused, the just for the unjust. He's going to suffer, the righteous for the unrighteous. He'll be penalized as the guilty. He'll, he'll take it upon himself, the sins of the world. He is the unguilty, the not guilty, but he will take it as the guilty took my place, took your place. He stood for us. He stood as us, having the wrath of God being poured out on him. And he's on his way now to the cross to see the fulfillment of the crucifixion so that the prophecy before the foundation of the world in Revelation 13, 8, Behold the Lamb of God crucified before the foundation of the world. And so this morning as you see this juxtaposition between the two, it's just ironic that Jesus has just come from a meal with all of his disciples, told them every one, all of you guys are going to fall away from me. Smite the shepherd and the sheep will be scattered. All of you will fall away. And Peter 
was the most adamant and the most quickly impetuous, just speaking up, just, just want so, so much vibrato. That's not the word. So much bravado is what I meant to say. Let me just tell you, I'm battling all kinds of congestion, and it's making me get things confused up here. So pray for me this morning. Vibrato is, ah, when you sing. Bravado is the other thing I wanted to say. Peter is just over the top. He's, he's, he's on the edge of being arrogant. He's impetuous. He, he, he's trying to prove himself, maybe a little bit sort of attention-seeking in the middle of everything. Oh, no, no, not so, Lord. No, 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 I will never. I will even go to the death for you if I have to. Jesus said, okay. He said, man, let me tell you something. You, everybody here at the table is going to deny me tonight before it's over with, but you, before the cock crows twice, you will deny me three times. You're going to be worse than the rest. Jesus had just prophesied to Peter they're in the courtyard now, and the prophecy that Jesus gave is being fulfilled in the very same moment that the high priest is accusing Jesus of being a false prophet. Do you see the irony here? This is crazy. So the bottom line is a trumped-up false prophet charge, and the reason is the next point. The Jesus' attitude to the temple is a threat to this well-established religious way of life, just this order of living. It's crazy. The Bible says in Jeremiah 17, 9, the heart is deceitfully wicked. Who can know it? And John Calvin said that the heart of man, the unregenerate heart, it's not talking about the new heart that Christ puts in us, but the, the unregenerate, completely, totally depraved, down radically down to the very core, in every sense of the word, is an idol factory. It will make idols. And, and, and what's happening here is actually a complete confirmation of what, what Calvin says. <coughs> Pardon me. Because the very people who had worshipped the God of Israel had put the temple into a place of replacing God himself. It had become a way of life. It had become an identifier. Instead of the temple being an open-door policy to all the nations of the world, Israel being the firstborn among the nations, where the light and the grace and the goodness and the healing of God could become literally for the, for the nations of the world, instead of that, that being the case, Israel had taken on the attitude of, we are the elect, we're the chosen, all the rest of you are a bunch of dogs. They began to look down their noses. They used the sacrificial system and the priest lined his pockets. It kept him paid. It, it put him in a place of influence. The high priest was looking for every way he could to be able to take Jesus down because what Jesus had just done the week before when he rode into Jerusalem on the back of a donkey in the triumphal entry into Jerusalem, <clears throat> pardon me, Jesus goes into the temple and he turns over the money changers' tables. They're upset big time. He temporarily stops the old sacrificial system. Thank you so much. He temporarily stops the sacrificial system. And they immediately go, who gave you this authority to do what you've done? So they're questioning him. They're looking for a way to try and get rid of his influence over the people. Because Jesus has already prophesied this generation standing here will not see death until you see these things come to pass. And that is, there won't be one stone left standing. I will totally rip this temple down. The temple that he's going to raise up in three days is his own body. Now let me just say this to you as a, as a, as a caveat, as a warning. 
the disciples themselves and those who heard Jesus got it wrong the first time, interpreting his words to be literal, to be an actual natural temple. Jesus from that point on was not interested in anything except the temple of the Holy Spirit. He said, I'm going to tear that one down because you've made a God out of it. He said, the real one that's the issue is the one that's going to be raised up in three days. And they had twisted that thinking that he literally is going to destroy Herod's temple and raise it back from the ground up in three days. And he was talking about the temple of his body. Now, the crazy thing is, is that he who is the very temple of God, the living temple, walked into the natural temple and it just made the glory that had been in that unrecognizable anymore. Because the glory now was dwelling in a living temple not made with hands. Somebody say amen. amen. So the judgment of God is coming. Judgment of God is coming to the natural temple. This generation will not pass until it happens. It happened in 70 AD. A whole system of, of, of belief of eschatology emerged in the same time all the cults hit in the 1800s which tries to rebuild it. I'm going to tell you, if it, if it does get rebuilt, the glory of the Lord will never refill it because the temple of God is now one not made with hands. From the rest of this point on, from the book of Acts, anytime you see the word temple, it is not hieron in the Greek, meaning the proper temple of the actual stone, brick, and mortar, but it's always naos, which is the temple of the Holy Spirit, your body. You are being built in the temple of the Lord. Come on, somebody. Jesus' words and actions constitute a veiled claim to royal authority. And this is where they're able to time up right here. He literally is going to say yes to some questions that are going to be asked of him. Everything he's done as he's prophesied, as he's proclaimed the word of the Lord, he's quoted the most repeated verse from the Old Testament is Psalm 110. The Lord said to my Lord, this is a Psalm of David, the Lord, capital L, capital O, capital R, capital D, as in Yahweh, the Father says to the Son, the Lord Yahweh says to Adonai, capital L, little o, little r, little d. If you look at that in the original there, or you look at it in your King James or your ESV, you'll see that it's two different ways to write the word Lord. And it's because there are two different Hebrew words there. The Father said to the Son, sit there at my right hand until I make all of your enemies your footstool. So Jesus quotes that. He talks about that right there in that moment in front of the high priest. He He's asked the question, and let me just say this to you. Right now, even if Jesus does, and he's about to actually make a veiled claim to royal authority, that he actually is a king, there is not one thing in the law of Moses or the law of God that would make that be an offense for them to crucify him. But the issue is they have led him down this path, and Jesus is no fool. He knows where he's headed. His, his uh, obedience his whole life has actively been dotting every I and crossing every T, every jot and every tittle of the law, Jesus has actively obeyed. But not only active obedience, also passive obedience. He's going to stand there and let them lie on him, let them mock him, let them accuse him of things that aren't true, tell lies about him when they can't even get their story straight. They can't even make all of their lies agree together. I love it because the message says they got up there and they couldn't even make their stories jive and they canceled each other's stories out. Isn't that great? It's not an offense to claim in the, in the law of God that you are called to be a king or that even you're the Messiah. But it's definitely an offense in the Roman law. And if you are claiming to be the leader, the governor then that means that you're staking a rebellious claim against the power of Caesar. And that kind of traitor, that kind of position 
of standing against the government is one that is deserving of death. And in the Roman Empire, that death was by crucifixion. And so the high priest has led Jesus right into this trail. Jesus is no fool. He knows where he's headed and he steps right into it, maintaining his integrity all along the way. Saying what God has told him to say. He stands by the word. He says he's asked by the high priest. Next point, Caiaphas' question is, you are the Messiah? Now, when we read it a moment ago, it, it reads in a question form. Are you the Messiah, the Son of the Blessed? And I've never ever seen this before, but this time when I was studying this, this is what became an absolute fascination to me because when you see the irony of these two selfies, Jesus in the courtyard of the high priest, Peter on the other side, out there in the outer courtyard, and these are the exact same words that, that Peter had used just six chapters before. When Jesus had asked the people, he said, Whom do men say that I am? Some say Isaiah, some say the prophet Jeremiah, others say Elijah. Some say it's your John the Baptist come back from the dead. Jesus looks at his disciples and he says, you know what, I hear all of those differing ideas, but who do you say that I am? Peter answered and he said, you are the Messiah. Greek word, you are the Christos, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. This is what is so crazy amazing to me is that when Caiaphas the high priest asks the question, it's not phrased, are you the Messiah? He actually makes a statement and raises his voice at the end of it. Listen how I'm going to do this. You are the Messiah? So I'm making a statement and turning it into a question. Guys, while Peter is in the outer court denying the very one that just a few chapters before himself, he had used that exact same Greek construction why, Lord, some, some, of you, some say that you're Isaiah, some you say you're Jeremiah, but I say you are the Messiah, the Son of the living God. He's in the outer court of the high priest's house denying Jesus while his very words are within, him, within his earshot inside in the inner court of the high priest's house. And Caiaphas asks the question, you are the Messiah? Do you see the irony in this? A, a, a perfect man who is maintaining his integrity, a certainly sinful human filled with improper motivations and protective mechanisms trying to cover himself and save his own skin is out here. And the very conviction that the Holy Spirit had brought him to, as a matter of fact, Jesus sort of gave him an attaboy that day and slapped him on the back and he said, you know what, uh, flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, Peter, but my Father which is in heaven. And Peter is remembering that moment and he knew there was a day when, he, when God had opened his eyes and shown him. This is the grief that he's in. He's in a place of trying to cover his own backside and save himself. And yet the Savior of the world, the one who has called him out onto the water, as, 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 as we sang this morning, God, when you, you, you caused me to step out in faith that is when my trust is without borders. Out onto oceans so deep where, I could, where my feet could fail. Peter was the one who got out of the boat. Peter was the one who answered the call of Jesus. Peter was the one who was there every time he saw Jesus raise a dead man and he opened some blind eyes and unstopped some deaf ears. Peter is in a hard place. He's wrestling. He's, he's trying to cover himself and protect himself. And what I want you to see this morning is that every one of us has to identify with one of these two men. And I want to tell you, none of us can identify with the perfect man. We all have to identify with the one who lied and the one who swore and the one who tried to cover his own backside. 
But I want to tell you, I'm thankful that's not the end of the story. Same words that Peter used, Caiaphas is asking the question, you were the Messiah? And he even answers, he adds to it, the son of the blessed one, not because Caiaphas believed that Jesus was this blessed one, but this is that same phrase, this is the awareness of what Jesus had heard when he came walking down the Jerusalem road, heading down to the Jordan River. His cousin John the Baptist sees him for the very first time. He's grown up around him, knows him, but he sees him for the very first time with open eyes of revelation. And he says, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. Jesus steps into the water and looks at his cousin. The cousin says, You should baptize me. Jesus says, No, allow it to be so to fulfill all righteousness. Let's do this. John takes Jesus baptizes him, raises him up out of the water. And when Jesus comes up out of the water, the Holy Spirit descends on him like a dove. And from, from that moment, there were people standing around that heard the voice from heaven. It was the voice of the Father saying, we see the, we see the, the presence of, of Trinity, of God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. God the Father from heaven speaks. God the Son is in the water, having been baptized. God the Holy Spirit lights on him. And the Father's voice from heaven says, This is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. Hear ye him. The same words that were uttered over him when the disciples, of which Peter, James, and John were the three who were able to see him when he was transfigured before them in the two prophets of the law, Moses and the prophets, Elijah, the representatives of those two showed up and Peter is just so excited he's just saying stupid stuff. Hey Lord, let me just build a couple of tents for you and let's just live here from now on. Peter was there. But sometimes in the pressure of life, sometimes when the enemy grips our hearts and we are fearful and we lose, we forget who we are and we, we don't remember those moments and we're pulled down in a place of despair. Sometimes it's when we don't have that ability to call all that up and remind ourselves that we're in a place of weakness. We're in a place where we're just grasping in our own strength. We've lost a connection with the strength that will carry us because we're never able to do anything in our own strength anyway. It's in that place where Peter is grappling, he's grasping, he's looking, he's seeking, he, and he's just trying to do it in his own, own will, his own ingenuity. He's, he's lying, he's swearing, he's denying. But look at Jesus. We contrast him again. We go back to the selfie of Jesus over here, and we see that he's completely consistent. He's maintaining his integrity. He's quoting scripture. He's going to give the high priest what the high priest is looking for. He says, yes, I am question was asked, are you, you are the Messiah, the son of the blessed? And Jesus said, I am. And some historians and theologians say that actually harkens all the way back to Exodus 3 when God revealed himself to Moses in the burning bush and said, go tell the children of Israel and go tell Pharaoh, I am that I am hath sent you. So Jesus says, I am. As a matter of fact, when you see this story in the gospel of John before he's actually taken before the high priest, there are those who gather around him and all of the soldiers, just a whole group of them come and say, where is this Jesus of Nazareth? And Jesus says, I am he. And when he does, they all fell down because of the power that was in his words. I am he. Whoosh! I mean, that, that's, that's pretty overwhelming. And so when Jesus speaks, I am, the high priest rends his clothes because, because Jesus says, you will see me sitting at the right hand of the power on high and and coming with the clouds of heaven, which is not a picture of his coming back to us in the second coming, but it's literally, he's quoting the book of Daniel, talking about his ascending with the clouds of glory up to the right hand of the majesty on high. 
that very passage. Jesus quotes Psalm 110, Mark 12, 36, Daniel 7, 13, Mark 13, 26. All of these passages, he sort of wraps them back up and sets it right out there in front of the high priest. The high priest rips his clothes and he says, okay, we've heard it. Do we need witnesses? Blasphemy. He screams blasphemy at the top of his lungs. Peter follows in the meantime at a safe distance. I just I see this, I see this scenario of the one that he loves, the one that he thought he would be willing to lay his life down for. He's attempting to kind of look around the shoulders of some tall Roman soldiers. He's looking into the inner court of the high priest's house, and Peter's standing out here warming himself by the fire. And one of the servant girls of the high priest comes around and he says, You're one of them. And he shakes his head, I don't know what you're talking about. I've never met the dude. He lies. Peter walks off, tries to, tries to inconspicuously sort of just move around through the crowd, and he comes back around. There's another fire in another place in the courtyard, and he's warming himself at that fire. And the servant girl talks to another one of theirs, and they just keep after him. They go, you know what? I'm just telling you, there, there's something about you. You've got Galilean written all over you. Just the way you talk. Look at this. Last point, and I'm finished this morning. Three and a half years with Jesus had influenced both Peter's appearance and his speech. Everybody say his speech. Listen to this, Mark 26, 73. Listen to the King James. The, the, the servant girl says, Surely thou also art one of them, for thy speech bereath thee. Strange King James word. Bereath. B-E-W-R-A-Y-E-T-H. You can see the word betray in it. Some translations even use that. You, you, you go over to the, to the message and it says, you've got to be one of them. Your accent gives you away. Peterson, as we read this morning in the message, it says, you've got to be one of them. You've got Galilean written all over you. What I want to say to you this in this moment is that spending time with Jesus when there has begun a transformation of your life it's going to seep out. People should be able to tell. If there's not some kind of marked difference, then I just want to say you probably hadn't been hanging around the Jesus of the Bible. Because if you hang around him, people are going to be able to tell it. And even when he was trying to lie, even when he was trying to curse and distract the people from him, it still was something on him when they said, You got it written all over you, dude! And in that moment when he denied Jesus, he heard the cock crow. Something grips Peter's heart. He'd, he'd, he'd heard within earshot the high priest used the same words that he had back earlier in Jesus' ministry. You are the Messiah, the Son of the living God. But something seemed to veil his heart. Something seemed to keep him in, gripped in a place of, 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 of no clarity. It's like cloudy in his thinking, searching, fearful. Scared, despondent. I could go down with this. And literally in that moment he denies and he curses in the last second and a rooster crows. And Jesus, I believe, looked at Peter. I believe through the shoulders of all of those, I believe that Jesus turned when that cock crowed that time. And I think out in the outer courtyard, Peter's eyes met looking for Jesus, looking for him. And I think he was broken. I think it was a complete naked, 
open before him with whom we have to do kind of moment that Peter had where he couldn't hide anything and he knew that he had done the very thing Jesus said he was going to do. He denied the Lord of glory. He fell down, collapsed into tears. And you know what the amazing thing is? Is that's not the end of the story. Jesus goes to the cross. He becomes the sin bearer, takes he who knew no sin was made to be sin for us so that we might be made the righteousness of God in him. He died for Peter's denial. He died for Peter's sin and for my sin and every person's sin in this room. And what I want to say to you is that there's not, so, there's not a place that you are so far from God that God can't reach back to you and bring you back to himself. Jesus dies. He's buried He's in the ground and he raised, he's raised up on the third day, signifying that God the Father has accepted the payment of the sacrifice of a sinless, spotless lamb. And as soon as some of the folks talk to Jesus, Jesus sends word. He says, go tell the disciples and Peter. Isn't that interesting? The one who denied him. Go tell the disciples and Peter. So the, this morning I just want to say that you take that last name and you draw a blank there and you put in your name. Go tell the disciples. That's everybody else in the room. And Billy. Because this thing is personal to you. This is, this is how far-reaching the gospel is. Jesus is raised from the dead. And there is a time when Peter is still so despondent under the weight of his lie, under his cursing. He rejoices when... When, 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 when he hears that Jesus is alive, but there's a, there's a moment where he's really not set free from the mistake of that. From, let me, let's just call it like it is. It's not just a mistake. It's a sin. He lied. He cursed. He denied Jesus. We, we, we see the closing of the Gospel of John. John tells a story about how Peter had gotten discouraged and he decides he's going to just go back to his old way of life. This happens a lot of times to believers who reach a place of offense and they get bitter and they're offended. They're offended not just at somebody else in church or at the pastor or an elder or children's church leader or worker or a brother or sister in Christ, but they're really just offended at God. God, why did that happen in my life? And they fall out. And they find themselves in a place of being in, a, in an isolated place of no fellowship and wounded and hurt and frustrated and angry and mad. And it's so easy sometimes for the enemy to come and tempt people like that and go, why don't you just go back to the way you used to live? Remember, you used to get some comfort from the drugs. You used to get some comfort from your old way of living, hanging out with your buddies and the sexual escapades that you were involved in. And whatever it is, it's a call that tries to lure every one of us in a place of discouragement. Just go back to what you used to do. Go back to your old way of living. Peter actually does. He goes back to fishing. Matter of fact, he's out on a boat one day and the closing chapter of the Gospel of John tells a story where he's up all night fishing and he dawn is it's breaking and he looks on the shore and he sees somebody that he's not quite sure and there's some fishermen in the boat with him but he looks and he goes, oh my, my. And he sees Jesus. And he smells the fish cooking. And he knows that there's nothing like real fellowship that has happened in the past with him and Jesus sitting around a fire together and Jesus opening the words of life. Peter's looking for restoration. 
You know what? This is the interesting thing. He is so excited when he realizes that it's Jesus out there on the shore cooking the fish that he doesn't even try to get all of his clothes back on. Not that fishermen were fishing in the nude. That's not the case. But they were had the least amount of clothing that they could to still be decent. And so without necessarily gathering all the clothes, he just jumps into the water and he dives out of the boat and heads swimming toward the shore to see Jesus. And Jesus says to Peter, Peter, do you love me? And Jesus, Peter says, yes. Jesus says, then feed my sheep. Peter, do you love me? Second time, Jesus asks him. Peter says, yes. Jesus says, feed my sheep. Third time, Jesus says, Peter, do you love me? That time, he sort of aggravated Peter. And Peter says, yes, Lord, I love you. Jesus says, feed my sheep. For every time Peter denied Jesus, Jesus made a statement to restore Peter and draw him back in. For every three, those three times, he denied him. But I want you to hear this. Peter had to get out of the boat to get restored. A couple of you heard it. Some of you are looking for a place of restoration in your life this morning, and there's some people back in the boat that will keep you doing what you've always been doing if you don't get out of the boat. Come on, it's, it's a boat of some relationships. It's a boat of an old lifestyle. It's a boat of some habits. It's a boat where you're comfortable. It's a boat where you know the folks. It's a boat where you just do what you've always been doing. And I'm telling you, you're seeing Jesus on the side of the shore of your life this morning. And if you're going to get restored to him, he's saying right now, get out the boat, Peter. I've called you out of the boat before. I believe this message in this, in this second service is for God to restore some people in a fresh start in your life to come back to the Lord. You've been far from Jesus and he wants to restore you to himself didn't hit me in the first service like it has in this one. If you want to be restored, you're going to have to get out of your boat. I don't know what your boat is. I'm not here to dictate or tell you what that is, but you know what your boat is. You know your boat of limitation. You can see Jesus on the shore. Now gather up your stuff and jump in the water and head to Jesus right now.